campus pastor here at Mariner's Mission Viejo. It's good to see you guys. Yes, hello all. Come on in. If, if you're not uh, in yet, find a seat. And uh, we're excited that you're here. We're, uh, we're wanting to continue the conversation of this great series that we've been in uh, about Jesus and religion and how he feels about it. So we're, uh, we're going to allow you to ask some questions that you want to ask uh, of our uh, wonderful teaching pastors over here. So I'm going to turn it over right now to Mike and Kenton to start answering your questions. So here you go. You guys are on. Woo! All right. Um, hi, everybody. Thank you for coming out at 4 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. And can we agree, Kenton B. Short in shorts is... Uh, is quite just for my quite stunning. He's a runner, and you can just kind of tell that, can't you? I mean, look at the. It's a big deal. Now, um, we're we're really glad uh, that you decided to join us. We are doing uh, this from four to five, fifteen, five twenty-ish, and then we have to run up to Irvine, and we're going to do one there. But we saved the best for first, and um, so we're glad that you are here. What we want to do is spend some time. Um, we have some questions that were already sent in to us that we'll use to get the conversation started. And then what we'd appreciate if you would do uh, is that you would write down your questions about the series, about um, life situations or pastoral situations that you're in or theology questions, and we would be glad to take a shot. The goal isn't to answer the questions because you can't do justice to some of the things that we're going to be wrestling with in, you know, 30 seconds or a minute soundbite, and believe us, you don't want us, you know, to talk for half an hour um, in in response to one question. So we want to let you know, A, doubts and questions are okay, and it's a highly encouraged part of the Christian faith, surprisingly enough. When you go into the Old Testament, you see all all the big questions of life that are wrestled with there. Secondly, we want to let you know we want to be a community uh, that simply says to people, no matter where they are on their faith journey, that they're welcome. And uh, that means if they're brand new and they have questions they think are basic, or you've been walking with Jesus forever, you have questions you think are advanced, there's a place for you. And then lastly, um, we felt like it'd be a great way to end uh, the series that we've been in, because so many questions have been raised according to that. So um, we're going to do our best shot. Let Tim know if you have a question, just kind of wave it at him. And, uh, and we'll go in. So go ahead and start writing. Kenton, let's start with you, my friend. What do you got? Here's a question. If Jesus is inclusive, why does he send people to hell who don't accept him? So that's, that's a, a light question, one. Right? That's a light one and to start with. How many with? of you have had that question asked to you? Right. So we get asked that question a lot. I think that people want to know that. And here would be my response to that. Jesus is inclusive. It doesn't say, this is if Jesus is inclusive. So let's take the first part. Jesus is inclusive. He died, the Bible over and again talks about how he died for the sins of the world. And he makes this very inclusive statement. Whoever will come to me can be my child. Whoever comes to me, I will forgive. So Jesus is incredibly inclusive. So the second part is, well, then how does he send them to hell? And I think uh, the way that usually I go at that is this. I think that Jesus surprisingly gives people what they want. And what a person wants is they don't want to be with God. You know, here God, through Jesus Christ, extends this invitation for forgiveness, for love, for family. Uh, We're born as spiritual orphans and we're lost and we have no spiritual family. And God does everything to make us family. And yet still some turn their back and run and don't want any part of it. 
And basically what hell is, is God giving people what they want. Uh, they don't want to be a part of what God wants for them. And I think that's surprising to people, but I think it puts the onus back on them. How would you answer that? Um, I would say, uh, just to springboard off of that, if you read Romans 1, for those of you Bible fans, um, when you read Romans 1, there is this descent, this almost liturgical uh, representation that Paul writes on that, that starts with us being ungrateful and not acknowledging the truth that's in us. And then there's, it's just kind of this spiral downward. And three different instances in Romans 1, it says, God gave them over. This is a very biblical idea that God's judgment isn't, if you take sexual sin, for instance, God's judgment isn't that she gets pregnant or you get found out or you get exposed. God's judgment is found precisely at those moments when he doesn't intervene, when he gives somebody over and simply says, it's yours. You can have what you want. And the idea is... um, that hell represents that place. Now, the, the counter-argument could be, yeah, but you're assuming that people have heard about God and they choose to reject Him actively. What about those people who've never heard? And the Bible undercuts us right there by simply saying, no matter who you are, where you've been, where you've lived, even if you haven't heard of, of Jesus of Nazareth, there is enough simply in natural revelation to condemn us all. Now, that raises other questions that this isn't posing, but we want to make clear one thing. Hell is not a monument to a mean God. Hell is actually a monument to God's love. Why? Because love requires choice. Now, not everyone in the Christian community agrees with this, right? There, there are those in the Christian community that, that would understand this a different way, and that's totally cool how I understand it, is that love, if two comparisons of love, would, tell me which one you think is more valuable. Suppose my wife had never met a man. Her parents had sheltered her. She grew up in a bomb shelter. I was the first man she'd ever met. She had no idea men existed, and here I was, and we got married. Or she was so foxy, this is scenario number two, and she could have any dude she wants, but she chooses me. Which love is more valuable? Second one. Why? Yeah, it represents more of a choice. Now, when God says... I'm after loving me and loving neighbor. Uh, He's making the issue about love. And love requires freedom for it to truly be love. So my view is, hey, God does allow us to choose however wide or broad you understand that choice. And that hell ultimately represents the place um, where, as Kenton said, and I think it's really profound, he gives us what we want. So I don't think he's actively torturing people for an eternity. I think that is completely not what the scripture teaches. There's no floating heads in a lake of fire. There could be floating heads. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'll have to check have to, that. Out. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of foxy ladies. Oh, yeah. oh, there she is. All right. Don't all religions lead to God? How can there be only one way? Now, this is a great question. Uh, how many of you get this one? Right? All right. Quite a few of us. I've wondered this myself. And one of the things that we've had the audacity to be declaring over and over again in the middle of this series is that it's not like Christianity's 
a right religion as opposed to all the other religions. We're saying that fundamentally any religion, Christian or otherwise, doesn't get us right with God. End of story. It's not that Jesus is the way to God. Jesus is God in human flesh. So the gospel undercuts all of our attempts to make our way, to find our path, because God comes near. That's kind of been the big supposition of the whole series. So when people say, hey, um, uh, do all roads lead to God? We say, no, no, God, the, the, the road that God traveled to us is the road we want to talk about. And that road goes through a manger, that road goes through an empty uh, a cross, and it ends in an empty tomb. Uh, and the idea that there are many different paths or religions, we just simply say, nope, religion itself, no matter where it is or who it's directed to, can't save. And after that, what do you do when they say it sounds uh, so narrow? Oh, yes. Only one way. Yes. What about the one way thought? That, well, I think there are lots of different things to say. First of all, it is ironic and this is a guy who wound up and said it'll be short answered. <laughs> Go ahead, just have that. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> no, no, you got to do the one that more hurts. thing. I said, Jeff, I know. Well, you attacked that my legs. Me. I know. Your legs are nice. Oh, okay. I just, I'm sorry the church never gets to see them. <laughs> you don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl, bro. Why do you tan those legs and then put pants on them? Um, if you haven't met Kenton before, you need to know a couple of things. He, 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 he is in khakis, 90%. I mean, well, I've never seen you in anything else except today. And so I'm very, I'm very grateful. Now, so the better question is, why would a good God make Kenton wear pants is the, is the better question. All right, so, so what about the exclusivity of one way? My counter to that would simply be this. When we talk about the idea of love, and you talk about the idea of committing yourself to a person. What is implicit in, in that idea? In every romantic heart in here, what's implicit in that? That there is a mutuality to it and a fidelity to it that isn't shared. Would you agree? Love by nature is meant at its best to be exclusive. Always. And, and that doesn't mean, of course, that I can only love one, or one can only love me, but it simply means the kind of covenant love we get pictures of in the scriptures that is best approximated, although poorly, by marriage, is the idea of one man, one woman loving each other in a way that's exclusive from everybody else, right? So the idea that God would love us with that kind of love and ask us to love him in return, that isn't as foreign as we make it out to be. Not only that, but the idea of God's uh, love being exclusive, you just simply say, no, 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 it's the most inclusive invitation in the history of the world. It's really Christians that have mucked it up so badly by making uh, people feel like they have to jump through hoops to receive it. What would you say? No, I like that. I like the idea. I liked how you use the illustration of marriage and that we don't consider that exclusive. In fact, it's what builds on it to, you know, the love, the trust. And so I like that. I well, like that as well, an answer. Well, all right. Weren't rituals, regulations, are we just supposed to keep going after these? Yeah, you got some, you got some over there? That, yeah, I got the, it. This is, a, this is one that would be really related to the series. And so uh, it says, if the plan from the beginning was for uh, redemption through Jesus, why did God establish thousands of years of ritualized religion before sending Jesus? Ooh, 
Kenton. So. Just, you, you have this grand narrative through the Bible. You know, why God does what he does is, I'm not sure I can answer that. You can take that one on. But what I do know in the story is that God meets people wherever they are in that, in that story. So you, you've got God creating people, puts them in a perfect environment. What would happen if we were in a perfect environment? Wouldn't we just choose to love God? And the obvious answer is no. Adam and Eve didn't do that. And then, you know, puts us in different circumstances. And we continually uh, run away from God. And is the question asking, how did God meet us in different places? Or why did he meet us in different ways? If Jesus, if, if the whole plan all along was to send Jesus, then why not just lead with that? Why do the whole, like, old covenant first? Yeah, no, that, I have no idea why God did that. <laughs> Yeah, I you think you were onto something. Well, I can tell you what he did. No, no, I, why he did it well, is I think pretty tricky. I think you're absolutely onto something. Um, really? I do. <laughs> I really do. Okay. So, so first of all, the Bible insists number one that Jesus came at just the right time. So, a couple different places in the New Testament, at the culmination of the ages, as it says in Hebrews, at just the right time, there is this sense that all that was shadow pointed towards something bigger than itself, and in the arrival of Jesus, all of that was fulfilled. So the Bible insists that there was a purpose for all of that. Whether or not we discern it, we'll see if we do justice to that. But the Bible insists there was purpose in all of that. Great so, drama. So that's, that's first thing. Second thing is, when Kenton was talking about God meeting us as we are, I think that is such a profound lesson for us. The way God relates to me as a new believer is different than how he relates to me after I've been walking with him for a while. The ancients, would, uh, would, they had the, these, these progressive stages of faith. And so you get, like, uh, there's a group of monastics called the Desert, Desert Fathers that talk about a period that uh, mature believers would go through called the Dark Night of the Soul, for instance, when God would take away the joy in all of the practices of the Christian faith so that you would pursue him for his sake and not just the gifts he gives you. So, as an example, there were all of these understandings that you'd go through stages of faith and that God would meet you differently. And so you see in the Old Testament this progressive narrative arc. For instance, in the Old Testament, God says, hey, how about let's only have sex with the person you're married to? How about that? No adultery, right? No adultery, and for that day and age when this was written, that was revolutionary. And even the, even the, the people of the Bible didn't always live up to that at all. Multiple wives and um, um, concubines and all of that craziness. But then Jesus shows up, and what's he say? It's not just not committing adultery, but let's talk about lust. And so Jesus progressively deepens the revelation of God, right? In, in a way that all of a sudden you go, oh my goodness, it's not just not committing adultery, but now it's about lust. It's not just about murder, it's about anger. And there's this sense that as God progressively reveals himself, he's doing a number of things. The first thing is, it's all grace and it's all faith. No part of revelation contradicts itself. But the second thing he's doing is he's foreshadowing what's to come. Now, the question is, well, why not just lead with the conclusion? And my, in my view, the answer is we simply weren't ready. 
Now, you can quibble with that and disagree with it, but I am absolutely convinced that God meets us where we were, and there was something about the ages and the weariness and the Roman Empire and that whole conflux of circumstance that when Jesus arrived was perfect for his arrival. And so you're saying even beyond that, that even in the reading of the Bible and that narrative, I'm going to meet God and understand faith in different ways you got than it. if you just had the one Jesus all of a sudden Absolutely. jump in the middle and of doesn't, time. And doesn't the writer of Hebrews say that in Hebrews 1, right? God has spoke through various means and in various ways throughout redemptive history, but now most powerfully he's spoken in his son. And, and we have to understand these aren't these are, these are like layers of the same onion. These aren't, we look at the Old Testament and think, well, that was one kind of thing, and the New Testament is another kind of thing. You have to understand, no, no, that, that's not the right way to look at it. It's the same thing. It's just deepened over time. That's a great question. That it, is a good question. I like that. I like you. Good answer. All right, here's uh, more of a, a general question that we oftentimes hear as followers of Jesus. Why do bad things happen to good or innocent people? Wow. That, um, that one we all get asked a lot. And I think as pastors we get ans- answered, asked a, uh, a lot. And there is such great pain typically when people ask the question that the first thing that I do is talk to them about the pain and the sadness in their life. And I think it is important on that one, going back to what Mike said initially, to be able to admit that you're not going to be able to answer that. You know, why a specific bad happens That's right. to a person. And to start down that road, you've you got to catch yourself and go, that is, there's such arrogance that you can explain to somebody why some bad thing happened in their life. Um, I, don't, I don't ever think I can do that. God clearly doesn't go out of his way to explain in the Bible while, why things happen. Job, for instance, never knew, and, and the Bible doesn't tell us why God allowed in that moment Satan to take all sorts of good things in his life away from him. And then, so I think that that's dangerous to explain it. I think, secondly, it's really dangerous to make God responsible for the bad thing, which is inherent in that question. You know, somehow God is bringing bad things into people's life. God doesn't bring bad into anybody's life. God's Bible's real clear. He's not responsible for sin. We're responsible for sin. We, you know, sin is something that in our self, you know, our, because of our selfish choice, we bring jealousy, destruction, pain, sadness, you know, in, as a whole thing into the world. And so there's, there's huge sadness in that. So I can't, I can't tell someone why they're in pain. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to explain that. I want to connect with them in pain. I want to make sure that they understand that, you know, I don't want them to fall off the truck going, well, you know, God works everything together for good. So this, this pain must be good in your life. Because that's, that's not what the verse says. It says that God's able to work everything together and he works for the good. It, but he doesn't say everything's good. So bad things in your life aren't good. And sometimes when we go after the answer to that question, we start to make, in our mind, we're, we're, we're trying to make some terrible, painful thing a good thing in right. their life. And they look at you like a cow so staring at a gate. And they're like, are you trying to make me like this very painful thing in my life? You, you can't be saying that to me, right? And we don't want to say that uh, because it's simply not true. There's evil in the world. Right. Evil destroys people. 
Evil is what separates people from God. It's a terrible thing. So, you know, we don't want to make God responsible for it. We don't want to try to be able to explain, you know, every bad thing and somehow say, you know, why, you know, the truth is bad happens to bad people and bad happens to good people. Bad happens all through life. (laughs) Right? What do you want to add to that? Because I think you have great answers no, to that just no. out of your own story. Well, no, I mean, you, you've hit it all. I mean, there's, um, I was watching my dad wither away from cancer in front of my eyes. And there was a very nice, well-meaning Christian couple that came in. And they said, well, this must be God's plan. Mm. And I just said, um, this most certainly is not God's plan. Genesis 1 and 2 is God's plan. Revelation 21 and 22 is God's plan. This is not God's plan. I know there are three things that the Bible affirms. The utter goodness of God, the utter evilness of evil, and God's sovereign commitment to bring good out of evil. And that's it. I think you're so brilliant to to war against the arrogance that says, you know, you've been raped and you'll probably start a, a ministry for rape survivors. And that's why God's letting this happen. And you're just going, does that not minimize? I mean, there's this trite, cliched sort of response we have. The biblical response to suffering is called lament. It is this now but not yet grieving that we do communally as a collection of believers saying, you know what, we cannot wait. There's hope now and there's hope to come. There's, there is healing now, and so we ask God to heal uh, and there will come a day when all the tears are wiped away. And so we yearn for that day while we pray for healing. Now we just recognize the Bible is so clear. Sin, uh, an adversary that wars against us, we often don't take spiritual warfare seriously at all. When Jesus says the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, we think he means accuse us of bad things. Well, he does do that, but I think he does more than that. And so there's this, just this sense that we've been sold in America, this feel-good gospel that when you suffer, it's your fault, and that is nothing but contract language that the Bible deals with from its earliest books. Strong feelings on that. All right. Mm. Um, this question is, again, kind of related to the series, and it's uh, talking about where does obedience fit in? If, um, if rituals and, and that kind of stuff are not a part of it. It says, uh, does, does desire for obedience go against grace and mercy? Mm. And how can encouragement not turn into bricks in the backpack? Nice. Yes. How, what, does, what was the last part? How does what? Uh, it says encouragement. How does encouragement and, and uh, the obedience... Remember we were and that, doing that kind the load stuff? people down, the bricks oh, in the yeah, backpack? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So how, if I'm encouraging you, if you're like a total drunkard, hypothetically, mm-hmm. um, or you swear a lot when you're running in your shorts, or something <laughs> like that, and I just want to encourage you, how does that not turn into legalism and piling on burdens? I think that's a great question. Right. I think that um, what we've emphasized in the series in the starting point... Uh, religion starts, the starting point is, I obey God. And it starts there. Mm-hmm. And then from that, it moves to everything. So if I obey God, God sees my obedience, and so therefore he loves me, and he blesses me, he gives good things, or he owes me. It's just that contract language we've talked about. But, but it is, you know, religion at its, you know, religion always leads to moralism. I'll be good. I'll do what's right. And in the doing what's right, I pry things out of God's hand. 
I get things that God didn't want to give me, but now he has to, but it's based in my obedience. And when I start with my obedience, I always end up in, in religion. I'm reading my Bible wrong, so I'm reading it like a bunch of Aesop's fables that says, here's how to be a good person. And the Bible doesn't tell you how to be a good person. It tells you how to know God. And so That's I'm good. reading it wrong. I'm thinking wrong. I can never get right when I start in obedience. Grace and mercy starts with God loves me. That's a covenant love. God loves me. Mm -hmm. And I understand that love. I embrace that love. And the response to that love is to love back. It is to be obedient. It is to, to respond. So God says, I love you. And, you know, he gives a great verse in Philippians. And in my love, I'm going to give you the will to want to do what I want, and I'm going to give you the ability to do what I want. God gives us everything that we need. And so a mark, the Bible says all the time, and it's just very comfortable with this language, when you are a child of God, you're going to have new desires. You're going to have new wants. You're going to want to go to a new direction. You're going to live differently. And that's how you know that you're a Christ follower, because grace changes a person's life. You're a new mm. creation. You have new desires. So Grace never minimizes obedience. Grace never says, oh, you know, hey, cut loose. <laughs> and, and that's even the argument in Romans. Now, the question's the right question, because even as you go through the book of Romans, it comes to the place in chapter 6 where it says, well, if I sin, and when I sin, God forgives, and when God forgives, that's more grace, right? And more grace is a good thing, right? <laughs> and so I should sin, so there's even more grace. So sin should abound. So I should sin because that even shows more grace. And Paul says, no, you shouldn't do that for two reasons, right? One is because you've been, you're no longer a slave to sin. You know what it's like to be a slave to sin. Why would you go back and re-enslave yourself in the very thing that destroyed you? So Paul says that. And then the second thing he says is sin really hurts. You know, you act like, you know, and sin for a season, you know, let's be honest, it's fun. You know, it's woo, and you jump in, and there's all sorts of excitement. But at the end, you know, that's why it's important to play the whole story out in your mind before you jump in. Hmm. It leads to massive pain. So I obey because I don't want to be a slave to sin. That's why I ran to God. I don't want the pain of sin. So I, you know, I play it forward. But, you know, to encourage you to do what's right, I'm just fanning the flame that's already there. You want what's right. Why else would you be here at 4 o'clock, right? Why, you, you want things that are different things. You want better things. You want more noble things. So when I say to you, uh, you know, somebody's on a, a team you're coaching. I used to coach. I have four sons, so you coach all these little soccer kids and stuff. You know, and you're, you're coaching them. They want to do better. They, you know, so, you, so am I making them little legalistic soccer players when I'm helping them and giving them skills and, and become better? No, they want that. They want that. And so encouragement is this great thing down a line that's saying, this is what I want. What would you say to that? That was a good answer. That's what I'd say to that. All right. Giddy up. Nicely done. All right, we're going um, to look at two uh, different aspects of the uh, issue of sin. Uh, 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 it says, do you think that if believers are gay or have premarital sex or are alcoholics, they will go to hell? So that's yes. one side of it. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's and then uh, the second one that's kind of tied to that issue. Culture today sees Christians as saying that gays are wrong or bad. How would mm -hmm. Jesus create an authentic relationship with a homosexual person? So, kind of two sides of that issue. Ooh, jump on in. 
You want me to start? Where did it? I can't even remember the beginning of that question. Do you think that believer, if believers are gay or have premarital sex or are alcoholics, they will go to hell? So that's no. one side of it. And then uh, Jesus seemed to be open to people that were sinners. So how would Jesus create an authentic relationship with a homosexual person? Okay, so I'll take the heterosexual part of it. You can take the other side. The, you know, when we sin, whatever the sin is, you know, clearly, on, you know, if, if, it's, if we're on this side of grace, we become a child of God. It just says to us that we are in what Mike was saying before, in a, a now and not yet. Am I, am I right in God's eyes? Yes and not yet, because there's still sin. I am in Christ. He sees me in Christ. Yet I sin, and he forgives my sin. And so the language is, you know, it's so powerful because it's kind of infinite. And language is, you know, we just have words in there. You know, words are kind of fumbling tools to capture these infinite ideas that the Bible tries to capture for us. So I'm right in Christ's eyes, and I'm being made right. I am, I am, I am absolutely righteous, and I'm becoming righteous. So there is that kind of language in it. And so when I sin in this time, I'm just showing that what the Bible said is true. I am still being saved. I'm in that process of being sanctified until, you know, now, until, you know, ultimately I'm completed when I, I go home to be with the Lord. So, you know, when, when somebody sins, almost regardless of what the sin is, there's not categories of sins, and there's no sin that keeps you out of, That's right. of uh, grace except for the sin of rejecting, saying, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. So I think that's the first part of it. No, that's we're a, going to jump into the absolutely. second part. Absolutely. No, no, that, I think that's really good. So does that sort of behavior damn people to hell? If believers engage in it, and the answer is no. Right? God, the, the, if, there is, if there are pearly gates, and if St. Peter's sitting there asking you a question on the way in, the question won't be what's your sexual orientation or did you have premarital sex? Uh, that won't be the question. Right? It is, it is those who've received the gift of Christ and those who've rejected it. Those are, those are the categories we have. Secondly, for those people who persistently, publicly, willfully rebel against the grace of Christ, mm. you have to, at some point, ask the question whether or not they actually received him to begin with. And the Bible's very comfortable saying, listen, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, to me um, will be with me. I mean, and, the, and, and he's talking to religious folks when he says this. So I, those, there are all sorts of passages throughout the Gospels where I go, yeah, you can have the right answers. And we kill disciples of Jesus when we tell them that Christianity is only a matter of knowing the right answers. As if you were just going to the DMV, right? And as long, it didn't matter how you really drive. As long as you had the right answers, you got your license. That is the worst possible thing we could communicate. Because faith... And grace will lead to a whole different way of living. And if it doesn't, at one point you have to ask. Thirdly, regarding uh, the gay community, I always have to say, and Kenton and I um, have talked about this and are so in agreement, that uh, we have to just lead with apology because of how hypocritical uh, the Christian community has been to the gay community. We've elevated 
um, that issue to an issue and not a person. And then we've made it an issue that is somehow worse than every other issue. So if you're here and you're sleeping around, if you're here and you're in the middle of an inappropriate divorce, if you're here and you're full of greed or pride, that's fine, you're in process, but if you're here and you're holding hands with somebody of the same gender, you're in a whole different category. And we just war against that and say, no, 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 not at all. We do say uh, that the church isn't always honest with the gay community because we either elevate the sin or we tell them that salvation in Jesus means they're heterosexuals um, and uh, they'll never struggle again. Both of those things aren't true. But we also want to tell the gay community, listen, number one, your desires aren't your destiny. You know, they don't ha- part of salvation in Jesus is freeing us from having to be enslaved by our desires. But secondly, your sexual orientation isn't the most important thing about you. It's not. The most important thing about you is you're made in the image of a good creator God, that we've all fallen short regardless of the issue, and all are in need of redemption and rescue through Christ. End of story. Now, once we get all that straight, like any of us, Jesus starts working on the heart. And what he'll do after that isn't ours to control. All we do is invite. All we do is encourage. But I love what Paul says. He says, we don't judge those outside the church. We judge those inside the church. Meaning, fundamentally, we expect Christians to act like Christians and non-Christians to act like non-Christians. What a novel concept. He, All right. ended, he ended dramatically. <laughs> I feel like we should clap or something. Right. Okay. All right, here's a, here's a couple questions that are related to each other. Um, but in this, this is fun. I don't know if it's fun for you. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, I should be watching football. But this is fun for us, and we're very grateful that you would take the time to engage this way. Sorry. And you'd, yes. be, a great, you'd be a great host, <laughs> like of some talk show. Excellent. You're sporty looking. Thank you. Okay. Here's a, here's a couple that are related, I will say again, as I was interrupted by one of our question answerers. Okay, we talked a few weeks ago about the Good Samaritan and how if given the choice, we should choose love over holiness. How do I actively love my non-Christian friends without crossing the line of condoning their sin? How do I get dirty on the outside but keep my heart pure? So that's one, and this is related. If growing up, my relationship with Christ was built on uh, a contract, how do I then lose the contract and move towards relationship without forgetting? So let's separate them because Ken yeah. can only remember one question. I'm sorry. I, I'm no, trying to no, lump no, them together here. So, so, I, to, I know, I know, I know. But I, you know, I, I don't, I want to got a lot of questions to, over there. If we have to, to do them focus. one at a time. We're so gonna, the first question, I liked uh, Mike's statement, and isn't that really what it is? If we expect Christians to be Christians and non-Christians to be non-Christians, when you go in the world and people are acting as what is their nature, <laughs> it isn't helpful to be, to lead with the condemning, you know, well, that's wrong, and that's wrong, and that's wrong, and that's wrong. Because they, they, they can't fix it. That's what the whole series was. They have no power. Their, their self-improvement plan isn't going to fix them over there. And the only thing that we have for them, which isn't to say the only, the great thing that we have for them is God's grace that can change and make them what they want. So, so, you know, our conversation on, on the non-Christian side really shouldn't be around... What are the standards of Christianity or what does Christianity consider right and wrong? Because it's only going to mess them up. And that seems to be the essence of the question, right? Yeah. So 
Then I'm, to Christians, I'm going to talk to them just like Mike said, well, we do have standards and there are things and God does draw lines and he's, That's you right. know, he's comfortable with those boundaries. And if you're outside those boundaries, then, you know, we need to talk about it. Is that kind of the essence of the first part? Yeah, of that I, think that, I think that yeah. gets the first let, one for And sure. let me jump on that because I think you said something and really, you will. really good. Yeah. Um, I, uh, my wife and I have a friend who um, is a lesbian and who has just gotten out of a, a kind of a long affair um, and has just entered into a new relationship. And as she's sharing this with us, um, it's just, it's, it's, it's beautiful because my wife and I, our natural impulses, you know, or are to, and, and this is the Pharisee in all of us, right? It's to condemn, it's to confront, it's to whatever. Uh, but God gave us grace in that moment just to listen and just to ask questions. And uh, you know, we, we just ended this whole conversation by saying, um, we want you to know that we're for you and we want to help you wrestle with these issues. And uh, without an agenda, we just want you to know we're here for you. And we just prayed uh, for this young lady and, and said it at that. A couple days later, I got a Facebook message from her just saying, hey, I'd really love to know what you guys think about all of this stuff. And that it, then all of a sudden that opened up a whole bunch of conversation. I love what Billy Graham says. You know, he's like, the, he's like we can quote him almost as canon, you know, <laughs> at this point. But he says, it's the Father's job to judge, it's the Spirit's job to convict, and it's my job to love. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. What is it in me that makes me feel like I can't love somebody until they know I don't approve of their behavior? What is that? See, that's a religious spirit that we've been trying to war against in ourselves. I mean, we're as guilty as anybody else because we get paid to be religious, right? So we get paid to make sure we're confronting. And, and there's just a whole other way that Jesus did it. I've never had to convince one person they're a sinner. Now, if I lead with that, right, then we're antagonistic. But people naturally will, will let you know about their brokenness and their pain, if they realize all of a sudden, wow, this person isn't going to reject me if I come out of hiding. And so the whole parable is just this beautiful picture of if you've got to choose between staying distant and clean or getting close and dirty and showing mercy, the choice that Jesus makes is obvious. Second question. The second one is, if growing up my relationship with Christ was built on contract, how do I lose the contract and move toward relationship without forgetting and I think what that means without is without forgetting, without forgetting the, the contractuals, the, the, uh, without forgetting what it means to follow Jesus. The ri- I think it's talking about the ritual side of it the, that we kind of, that it was built on, the contractual side it was built on. Go ahead. Tyler, was this your question? This was Tyler's question. This might be the most intelligent question I've heard all I, evening. I think so. Right. Okay. So, so what he what he was saying was this: the the spiritual discipline side uh, that he was told in the contract would help him grow closer to God or, or be loved more by God. 
uh, that that the disciplines now he now he wants to move at the 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 relational aspect of it, but not lose what he was gaining in the contractual side in the disciplines. Totally. totally. You know, the contract side, it, um, we always trip on that because that sense of doing things. When we do it with the contract mentality, there might be, you know, I spend time in prayer thinking on the contract side, God will love me more. I spend time reading his word thinking God will be more pleased. It isn't that it's a total waste. If I read God's word, I actually am going to get value out of it. And if I pray, I get some value out of Even it. Even in a contractual way. Even in a contractual way. Yeah. But I miss, the, I miss the most important beauty of it in that I'm loved and I don't have to do it to be more loved. Good. And it's a part of every relationship. Contract is, is the infection of humanity. We just move at each other. We're performance-oriented people. We're paid by performance. Uh, people like us when we're achieving. Uh, when we're not achieving, we're frowned at, we're scowled at. You know, we get the information real quick, non-verbally and verbally. You are not doing what I want you to do. And, and so get back in line and start performing. And it's very foreign to accept the idea that you're loved regardless of what you do. And even, you know, my wife is wonderful and she loves me. I love her. You know, too, we want so much to be in that covenant kind of love. But it's beyond us in many ways. And, and there, it just falls in. Hey, I did this for you. You know, why don't you? Or what? You know, and, and you just hear the contract in it. And, um, and that expectation of, you know, and I want to think that I'm doing things just out of love, and yet there's an expectation on the side, and there's the hooks and my brokenness and sadness. It's just part of life. It's very, very hard to live in that covenant space. And I think, um, I think that part of uh, life is... is uh, seeing the pain of it, repenting from it, confessing it, kind of repenting, going, ah, there it is again, and I don't want that, mm -hmm. and I want to move away from that, and I want to move, you know, marriage is, is an adventure in trying to understand covenant love, to say, I'm not going to do contract, I really am going to try to love without all of these, you know, barbs and hooks that are going to pull back, and uh, it's, you know, that's why I think God uses the marriage relationship as this one between the church and Jesus and Jesus and the church because it is such a beautiful place. It, it only works when you are trying to move to that place. So the first half of your conversation is, I mean, the first question that part of what I heard is, how do I let go of that? I think that's an adventure in life, and I think that's something you're, I would say to you, Stay on that journey and just stay at it every day. And it's something that I'm, I'm working at all the time, going, God, ah, there it is again. I see it. I don't know that I, I ever get free of it. And then the second half of it, um, there are times in my life that I'm very rigorous. This is about spiritual disciplines. And spiritual disciplines are wonderful things. It's like uh, I run. I don't like to run. I hate to run. I don't enjoy it when I run. Uh, but I get to eat what I want, and I get to play with my kids. And my kids are all old, and they're very active. And so, you know, they don't want me to be the old man who can't keep up. And I, you know, I can't win anymore in any game. 
<laughs> but I can Checkers. play. I, yeah, yeah. But I can play. So whatever we do, whether it's I can I can snowboard, which is a big deal at my age. Anybody snowboard at That's my right. age? That's a big thing. That's right. And so I snow. He's I, 62. I, yeah, That's no, amazing. That. But I play hard and I do it. So. What's the value of a discipline? Staying in shape, running. I get to play with my kids. I get to experience life. You know, same thing spiritually. When I, you know, I read God's word, I get, I get insights. I get to be with God. I get to enjoy the relationship. There are times that I'm very rigorous and I'm doing, I'm very disciplined and I love that. And then there's seasons where it starts to get old because the same thing won't get the same results. So I have to try mm. something new. Mm. And so I try some things that are new, but I never lose sight of what I'm doing them for. Why do I run? Why do I exercise? It's to be with my kids, to be healthy, to have the life that I want. And so I do a lot of things I don't like because I get, I get that. And, and that's why I do disciplines. I don't always enjoy the spiritual disciplines. What? That's right. I oh, don't. my goodness. It's true. But I love what they do for me. And so sometimes it is discipline. It's good. All right, we've got a number of questions that are more specific to um, church uh, theology and then, uh, then uh, different Bible passages and things like that. So i got two questions on one issue, both coming from the different sides. One is uh, I was raised in a, chur- uh, a church that obviously had a, a different view of women. Women should wear head coverings, those kinds of things. Um, uh, what is the what is the deal with mariners? How how now now with uh, women giving announcements or teaching and that kind oh of stuff? Goodness. So is that you know how how does mariners view that? And then on the other side of it, somebody says I've noticed that there are very few women in leadership here, and the ones that are seem to be involved in children's ministry. And what does that mean for women here? So kind of look sit at in our signs. staff meetings. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a big one, too. And, you know, that one's the one that rips through the church, and I've not heard Mike answer it. So I'll answer it, then let's see what he says. All right? We might not even agree. Um, the, uh, um, do it quick and fast. Let's see. Yeah. Um, You're doing pretty good. The, the question about women in ministry comes from, in the New Testament, in different places, when there was difficulty... Paul throws some pretty harsh language. I, I say a woman shouldn't teach a man. Uh, women should wear things on their head. And, you know, and, and, and they're, you know it's kind of like these statements they write in the Bible and you're like, whoa. And it seems to make women a second class. And some people take those and say they're all cultural. And Paul... Uh, was a chauvinist because he was a Pharisee. And his highest point of theology is when he said in Galatians, in Christ there is no male or female, Greek or Jew, Jew, and slave or free. And that was his highest statement of theology. And he screwed up early on writing the Bible. And God let him do that because, you know, he was growing. And to me, that's a real slippery slope because... You're taking God's word and you're saying, you're, you're, you make it pretty, uh, you're, you know, all of a sudden it's like you just take verses and say these aren't important and, you know, you have kind of a really unique view of inspiration. And so what I think Paul is doing is in the New Testament when there's problems, the surprise is he argues for male headship. So I'm a male headship person, so we'll see if you are too. I love you. And uh, male headship is the idea that God, uh, when he defends his things, he says man was created first, and he gives 
his argument is there is a created order and God created man and then he created woman and there's actually intent in that creation and Paul argues from that in the New Testament and that's the biblical concept of headship and then he applies it in some interesting ways so in this situation where there's problems and women are you know screaming in the church in the back you know it's you know women you're gonna have to be quiet or you're gonna have to wear headdresses or but really it's those things are cultural but the principle is the principle of headship so at mariners or in a church I think that there has to be just like in a marriage well no so let me give some <laughs> headship yeah. wow so in a marriage <laughs> Uh, in a bit, you know, maybe the best way to understand it is in a corporation, there's a CEO, CFO. CFO might answer to the CFO. Is the CEO a more valuable person? No. Is, are they more of a human being? No. Do they have more intrinsic value? No, they just play a different role. And in marriage, there are clearly roles in marriage. And it is the man's job to take spiritual leadership in the home to initiate and and uh and the the language is pretty consistent and the language for women is to be responding and so i say it this way and if you're super feminist you'll just hate this is that god says to the man go out and slay dragons and he says to the woman join the man that you love in going out and slaying dragons now most people hear that and what they hear in that language is that one's a superior role and it isn't a superior role it's just a different role they're just different responsibilities and they have a big fight in theology it's called egalitarianism and it's it's equal you you know you're gonna if you're gonna have equality there has to be equal roles and i think it's very hard to defend from scripture equal roles for male and female and then when paul applies that in the church when there's problems he does kind of a headship role. And so the simple way to answer it, then you can jump in and then you might want to fire a bunch of questions on this one. This one tends to make people pretty hot. Um, but I would say this, what he, there needs to be some expression of headship in the church. So at Mariners, the expression of headship is that everyone who sits on the board is male. It's not even that the senior pastor has to be male. It's just the board is male. So you could have a woman's senior pastor at Mariners because headship resides in the, uh, in the board. Now, saying all that, women are equally gifted, women are equally talented, and our church women can speak on Sunday mornings and teach God's word because we think the idea of teaching uh, has this idea of authority in the New Testament that's a little bit different in our churches. And, uh, and so uh, women play the highest roles and I don't think I know how to read my Bible I don't know how to apply every situation but for Mariners women are not restricted from any position or any ministry except for serving on the board and the reason is because the way Paul argues is he throws a big hard fastball and says God intended in the order of creation headship that's the way I read it you want to fix it <laughs> no no and i'm so glad i'm so glad whoever asked this question asked it because it's like the the conversation about um the gay community there's been so much abuse on this uh. issue and so much abuse of power and just i mean physical abuse and emotional abuse and just hostility it just it grieves the heart of jesus um the bible begins 
male, female, both in the image. Both are needed in the image of God. In Genesis chapter 2, right? So man himself doesn't fully reflect the image. Woman herself doesn't fully reflect the image. Both together reflect the image. Genesis chapter 2, the man, it's not good that he is alone, so God creates a suitable helper. Now the word helper is the word azir, which is used, it's not, it doesn't mean like assistant. <laughs> it's actually a word that's used of God when he rescues Israel, okay? So it's a rescuer. So it's not good the man was alone, so I will create a rescuer for him. All right, so that's the picture we're given in Genesis 1 and 2. And all the women right there going, that's so That's exactly exactly the way it is. Men are hopeless. In Genesis chapter 3, and we, and th- we do not have time to get into this, but in Genesis chapter 3, <laughs> Everything flips into a power game. Instead of, in Genesis 1 and 2, intimacy and compassionate love and understanding, now God curses the ground, the woman, the serpent. And part of cursing the woman, and this is a whole big story that should raise other questions, he says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. The word desire means the desire to control. And the word rule means the way a king would rule over uh, a subject. So instead of intimate, uh, equal relationships, now it's a power struggle. Your woman's desire will be to control your husband, and your husband will control by trying to dominate you. And anyone who's married can say, yes, power struggles afoot in marriage. That is how it works. Sex and money are the two big power issues. The New Testament's teaching reverses that. I'm getting there. Reverses that. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says to wives, wives submit to your husbands. Do you understand in the first century that would not have been revolutionary? Everyone would have gone, well, yeah, that's what they do. They're property. What would have been revolutionary is when Paul said, and husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then for 11 verses, gives husbands instructions. Back then, under Roman law, you owed your wife a roof over her head and the opportunity to bear children, and that was it. When Paul introduces headship in that context, he attaches it to sacrifice. So to be head is to be head sacrificer, head servant. Now, ladies, would you follow somebody who believed headship was that? Absolutely. So, do I believe in headship? Absolutely. It is taught throughout the Bible. It's taught in Israel. It's taught in the family of faith. It's taught in church. There is no question it is taught. But it is grossly misunderstood because it is attached to servanthood and not to domination. And so, ladies, you need to understand, we have really grossly distorted these passages We believe that spiritual gifts are given without regard to gender, and your job, whatever spiritual gift you have, is to use it for the benefit of the body. And I love how Kenton said it. You are not restricted in that regard. All right. Uh, These are uh, a couple of questions on... How do um, Great. Guys doing okay? Yeah. He's doing... You guys are both doing good. I think you're doing great. Okay. And I'm sure that they're worried about what I think. Uh, (laughs) Uh, How can I best influence my son towards salvation? Uh, He's not a believer, doesn't want to hear it. Um, So what would be the best way to to move at a non-believer son towards uh, salvation? That's a good question. How old is the son? Hypothetically. 42. Wow. So it's been a life. How long has he watched you 
as a follower? 42 years. 42 years. Yeah. Boy, that is tough. Yeah. Right. So, well, and the argument approach isn't working. Yeah. I think, um, so first of all, you know, when you take a family member and it is your greatest passion for them to come to Jesus. Totally. So, we, we care so much. You can't, you can't not care. Um, but you, you want to try different approaches, and one approach comes most naturally, whatever it is. And so, you know, a loving mother's going to come a certain way, and so um, the first encouragement I give you is, I, and I know you do this, is you pray for them. There's, I had friends that I prayed for for uh, 40 years and came to Christ after 40 years, and, and that holding on to, trusting in, saying, God, I know you can do this, I think that's important. I think giving, you know, having the sense that God's going to bring other people into their life and having that profound faith that there's people God brings into them. And so even your prayers are directed at God. You know, as you bring people into them, into his life, give them ears to hear, God, you know, break through and speak. I think as a parent, you always want to do, you know, the thing you do. And I'm sure you've written letters and, you, you know, you call things. And, uh, and I, I like the approach where, and I do it all the time. It's like, you know, I know this is a pain. You know, I say it to my sons. I go, I know you don't like how I love you when I do this, but I can't help it because this is who I am. And I just, and I, and I have that sense that love overpowers and so I keep moving in love with them. Um, but a lot of time, because as we grow up, we differentiate from our, our parents, and our parents can't tell us everything. So you know that. What? No, I like Mike's definition of hardening. It, you know, or, you know, God lets us have what we want, and God's letting him have what he wants. Um, but you can pray that God changes his heart. God can do that. You know, God, God's bigger than even our desires. And so you can pray big, powerful, reformed prayers, mm-hmm. you know, of mm-hmm. saying, you know, God, change his heart, capture his heart. You know, you, know I, you just pray big, courageous prayers. But you just don't give up. And yeah. I know that you don't. But I don't think there's a magic answer to that. I think a parent's love is a parent's love, and you're never not a parent. You know, one thing that strikes me, and I have no idea if this is right, wrong, or otherwise, my little uh, seven-year-old boy, and, and this, this is going to feel weird because it's the opposite of kind of what you're wrestling with. My little seven-year-old boy uh, this summer said he wanted to pray to receive Jesus. And so we kind of did that whole thing. And then I just looked at him and I said, son, do you understand that even, ha- even if you'd never prayed that, I would still love you and be proud of you? that my love for you is not at all contingent upon whether or not you choose to follow Jesus. And for some reason, I felt really compelled to share that because I think there's this sense I worry about in my life where he could get that impression. And for whatever that's worth, maybe it's worth communicating that 
again, I know you have, I know you both, I know, and there's no easy answer. I mean, love doesn't manipulate, love doesn't guilt, love can only invite. And ultimately, you just, you just simply have to say, we'll love you no matter what, and trust that, that God will use other things. And that's, that's the glorious and horrible thing about God, is that he will use tragedy, he will use beauty, he will use goodness, he'll use anything, but he will not give up on your son. You have to understand that. So when you ask, hey, will God harden his heart? Nope. God's not in the business of hardening hearts. Now what God will do is allow a heart that's hardened towards him to be further hardened. Absolutely. But that's a different conversation. All right, this goes back to the story of the Good Samaritan. We got, we got like 10 minutes. 10 minutes to go, okay. Okay, how we doing? You guys all right? All right, well, I think couple claps. That's sure. good. All right. Uh, so this goes back to the story of the Good Samaritan. We were taught to love our enemies. And so um, are we really supposed to love a person even if we have been raped by them? <laughs> Woo! There you go. I'm so glad whoever asked that asked that. Uh, I'll take a crack and then you add. First of all, I'm, I'm terribly, terribly sorry um, that that happened to you. That is not God's plan. That is not God's will. I'm so, so, so sorry. The reason you would choose to love the person isn't for them. It's for you. Because if you do not make that choice to, to forgive them and to release your claim to punish them, what will happen is that will just poison and eat away. And I, I, a friend of mine said, forgiveness is setting somebody free and then finding out it was you. Loving your enemy doesn't mean you put yourself in harm's way. It doesn't mean that you're a doormat. It doesn't mean that you don't have hugely appropriate boundaries. It means that internally, you ask God to bring you to the place where you could actually pray for the person. And that is only a work of grace. That is only a work of grace. The fact that you would even put that whole thread and conversation together to say, this is my enemy. How do I love? God would simply say, let me start melting and unnumbing and filling lies with truth and filling pain with hope. And there'll come a place, if, if you will allow him to take you there, where you could actually go before the Lord and say, God, I yield my right to punish this person myself because I trust justice will be done in your economy and I trust that this doesn't have to define me I know that's real easy for me to say not having gone through that but the flip side it's for you it's for you that you would choose to love this person I like that I, you know love is such a, a high ascending word and I like how you qualify it love is the sense of saying, I'm not going to let this memory make me the bitter person, and then I become embittered. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm going to give forgiveness. But, you know, forgiveness is just releasing, and so I think that's the idea. All right. Um, this one, Kenton, you talked about the view of Scripture, and so this one kind of comes at that. Are there any errors in the Bible errors in translation, what's the view that we take on the Bible? Do it. Yeah, I think that the historical Christian position is the one that we have, which is 
There's surely errors in translations, and, and uh, there's errors as people have made different translations. The, what the historical position is, is that in the original text, there was no errors, that this is God's word given to us, inspired by God. Um, but because, you know, which is a whole thing of study, but as you look at the Bible and how it's been so rigorously translated, that there's no, uh, there's no mistakes or errors that would be substantive because they just work too hard at it. And so we have great, great translations. And uh, if you know the story even about the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is they found uh, original manuscripts that go way back. And then, you know, you have all these translations in between and they compared it and they saw that it was so incredibly accurate. So our, you know, our Bibles are wonderfully accurate uh, the Bible is God's inspired word. It's the words that he wants for us. Uh, you know, but translations, you know, you're taking it from Greek and you're translating it from English. You guys understand what happens when you translate something. You're taking, you know, you're taking something that's written in a language, moving it. You know, that, and that's why sometimes, you know, you'll listen to Mike or you go, here was the word, here's what it's meant. Because even going back to the original language adds meaning at that point that a translation, you know, somebody had to sit down or a team of people to say, here's what it, it says. Mm-hmm. Most importantly, you, have, you know, if, if you have questions on that, there are so many great books that are written, mm-hmm. but you have every reason to trust your English translations. They are phenomenal. And the story of the Bible is a phenomenal story. If you, mm-hmm. if you ever just want to read the history of it, you just see this is a book that has been protected, God's hand's been on it, and the way it's been handled through, just how it's gone through, just beautiful stories, beautiful, beautiful stories. That's great. So continuing on that. Um, we got to be quick. we got five minutes. Five minutes? Okay. Five minutes. So this is, this is rapid fire. You want some rapid fire questions? Rapid. How would you best study the Bible? Yes. Then? Okay, next. So just do it. Okay, there you go. <laughs> Whoever asked that question, I'm very sorry. No, 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 no. How would you best study the Bible? Yeah, if, you're not a, if you're not a theologian yeah. or you haven't read right. yes. often, yeah. um, what's the magic eight ball answer? I think the answer yeah. is no. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, how, would you, how would you study the Bible? Okay, one of the things uh, you have to do, first of all, is read it cover to cover. Uh, and read it as one story. Don't get hung up on the minutia. Have a notebook next to you. Write down all your questions as you go through the thing. And you'll have lots and lots and lots and lots. So just start reading the thing. Secondly, um, there are things called commentaries and atlases and dictionaries. Uh, we can recommend some if you want to email me. But this one's a study Bible, right? That's right. So, so this has a commentary in. in it. So when you read this one, it actually has questions down on the bottom. And so when you're reading a Bible, you get a study Bible. This is a commentary that's already stuck in your Bible. Totally. And there are maps and concordances and all of these. But here's the deal. The, the, there's no substitute for just getting in the thing. I am a person that loves to read books about the Bible, sometimes in the neglect of the Bible itself. So sit in it, make a list of your questions, uh, get in a good Bible study where you're wrestling with the text yourself and not just sitting there having somebody talk at you. And if you really want, email Tim or myself, and we'll give you some good recommendations for dictionaries um, and commentaries. All right. Uh, what about spiritual gifts in the church? Are they for today? Why, why is there a controversy about spiritual gifts and their use? So, That's a great question. There are gifts. 
My, my view is they're all operative today. Yeah, Would you agree with that? I mean, yeah. there is nothing in the Bible. There's one hint of a verse that's been horribly misunderstood uh, that's been taken that there are some gifts of the Spirit that aren't operative today. That is simply not true. Um, the gifts are accurate, but there are laws that govern their use collectively. So um, love, order, and unity are the big three that Paul gives. And, and so we want to be very careful about how those gifts are exercised in our communities because they're so divisive. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah? I like that. I like you. Okay. You do? Uh, we've got Any other, now, what observations do you have? What feelings do you have about this? What I'm interested in is, does this meet a question. need? Do you like things like this? We haven't done this before. The lady speaks. My shirt off? So some questions you'd like to go deeper in when we're... So not make it wide open, narrow Maybe the scope of the some. questions and go deeper on them. Okay. Good. So narrow the scope and subject matter. Okay, okay so we can good. go deeper in it. That's what great else idea. do you like about it? Or what things would you be interested this is helpful. in? This is because, a good question. yeah, I'm interested to see if it's something that we want to continue. Yeah. Well, you should see these three. Mike refused to answer. Totally. No, I'm just kidding. Just okay, good. So the honesty and the willingness to go, I'm not sure, I don't know, or while wow, we've done this one bad. Okay. Right. Totally. There's good. People. What other thoughts do you have? Yeah. Okay. Good. Oh, that's good. Thank you. I like that. Yeah, behind. Did you see all the nods on his point? Okay. Ooh. Anything in the format, anything you'd like change, stuff you'd like, just think about it. What about yeah. his shorts? You like to you just punch them out instead of having to write them and stuff. The only reason, let me, let me say this and then see if you still feel the same way. The only reason we didn't is there, there sometimes people will make statements and not ask questions and they'll use that opportunity to, to preach. Or they'll ask questions that are very, very specific to them but not specific to anybody. And I've been in, in conversations like that where you spend half an hour on, you know, how did dinosaurs get in the ark? And you want to say... Listen, that's an important question. I'd like to know that. Yes. It was dinosaur eggs that were in the ark. It wasn't the dinosaurs themselves. It was just the eggs. They're mammals. But the dialogue, I, I, I miss that too, because it feels, it doesn't feel very relational the way we did it. What if we did, did follow-ups? Is that what you're saying? And I feel that. I didn't feel as relational as I thought. Oh, I would like this to be more relational. And that's a problem, but, I, but is that what you're looking for? Is there even something else? Yeah. Right. And then go at it. But there is, but but the relational clearly is missing. I do that. Yeah, because it's the first time we've heard your voice and 
Yeah. Well, I and like I think that. there's some, nice some questions that people wouldn't ask out loud too. So we want to give right. the, we want to create some safety in being able yeah, to write somebody them wouldn't, down. You wouldn't probably say, "How do I forgive the person that raped me?" or "How do I love the person right. that raped me?" But what we can do, just as a step, is to say we can take a crack at a question that's written down, and then do follow-ups. What other questions does that raise? Or yes. Okay. I'm not in favor of making it too narrow. But you're you have not in favor of making it so so You liked life. it this way, but you might like it the other way too. You just don't know. See, so you right. like this? That's this right. This is the one you have. Why do so I we'll have do to do that? Pick? You might not have to, yeah. I think the time limitation is tough. You know, this, this amount of time. And You'd like to go longer. Really? Good. You know what? Because you know what? I'm glad to hear that because I was looking going, I think they're tired, Mike. We should let it go. And so, so you... How many times did you say, we got to hurry up, we got to go? Yeah, at the end. There's a lot of questions that people still have. So what's the time frame you like? Four hours. Four hours. Wow. So, some of these people have been at church all day. Like I've seen, there's a few people so that came to the, the Next Steps you. lunch and then here, I'm they've been at church you, all day Mike long. Mike has bragged on you and it's all true. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. There you go. That's right. But there's a lot of hypocrites in this church because I got a question. We got a here. question. And it's why are there so many hypocrites in this church? Um, any last comments? Yeah. Right. Sure. No. And it creates conversation, doesn't it? That's what we want because it's a place to go. Maybe I don't have to. Ask, you know, it'll. It'll. Good. Yeah. I like that. It's dinner time. Not for us. So some of the questions, just so you know, some questions didn't get answered. A lot of them were more specific towards a Bible passage or something like that. So if you still have questions that didn't get answered, um, I know that I'll be sticking around and John will for a little bit to talk afterwards. And if there's other questions that come up, we want to we want to make sure that we're still moving at some of those things and, and that you don't feel like because we didn't get to every single one that you aren't being heard and we'll save in them. those too. So. so We'll do another one. I can't promise he'll always wear shorts and, and drive down, but we can. I know. You don't know that, see? I will not wear pants ever. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> yes, you know what? Why don't we collect the questions, and if there are a few that we can hit on the Tuesdays, we, we have, Ken and I do this really fun thing on Tuesday mornings. We reflect on the weekend for about five or six minutes, and then we spend 10 minutes or so answering questions that people email in. It's, and so if you go on marinerschurch.org, um, you can podcast the Mission Viejo or the Irvine or the Huntington Beach message. And then implicit in that is this thing called continuing the conversation where we just want to do... Aren't you going to put this one on? Yeah, I think we are. So if you like something, you go, hey, there's actually this one, and they will hear this one. Yeah. So, um, so let's do this. Um, any last comments? I didn't. I'm clearly sorry. the brightest people in Orange County. Well, yeah, smart. I know. I know. So, so impressed. All right, I've been so, telling you all along. Really. I know. Seriously. Hey, thank you for taking time out. Um, you've convinced us. We'll do. We'll do some more. I don't know when. Um, we have a, a new series that we're going to start next week called Consumed. 
um, which I think will be interesting kind of leading into Christmas and through the Thanksgiving deal. So uh, stay tuned for that. But, um, and feel free to hang around. Uh, we do have the Kellers and the Alexanders, uh, and we do have the Ramseys. Those are some staff couples that are here and get to know each other, and we're glad that you took time out. We cannot stay and chat because we are hitting the road up to Irvine to be ready at 6 o'clock to do this again. Um, and we will take what you've uh, commented on and implement it even as we're driving up, all right? Great. Great. Thanks, guys, right. for coming down. All right. Let's pray. Hold on. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I can't help myself. May the Lord shine His face upon you and give you peace. Blessings, you guys. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.